from Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favour but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that also you also have a master in heaven. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we hear your word expounded, I pray that you'll um, not allow us to uh, just sort of cruise through, but rather um, we pray that you'll produce in us repentance, that you'll produce in us greater faith. So help us, Lord, please, we pray, to to listen carefully and to to follow along and to to, uh, think about how this um, really relates to us and help us to make those um, necessary changes. And through all of it, Lord, help us to fix our eyes more closely on Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Carl. I've got a massive, massive pile of books here with me uh, because I think, oh, man, I was saying, I was saying to, uh, to Ben before, in, uh, just before, uh, that this is really a hard sermon because it's so uh, comprehensive. Uh, you know, like if you were to pick the three most significant relationships in life, what would you pick? You'd probably pick husbands and wives, Right, parents and children, and your working relationship. You know, like they're all really substantial relationships. Uh, I guess the only one missing is maybe friendship, but friendship, you know, is is a long way still from from those other three. Uh, you know, most of the others are kind of 24/7. Marriage is 24/7. Parents and children is 24/7 at least for you know 20 years of life, and uh, and our working life is it, you know takes up a huge percentage of our time. And so these are three really significant relationships and it's hard to get through everything that you want to talk about, I suppose, uh, everything there is to say in uh, 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 50 or 60 or 70 minutes, uh, however long it will take. Uh, so I thought I'd recommend a few books. Uh, there's, uh, there's a few good ones on, on marriage and about the stuff that we're thinking about. Uh, a good one that I've just started dipping into is called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller uh, and Nathan tells me he's reading it and it's really good. So there's two recommendations. Um, there's also a book which is normally in the, in the book repository uh, but it's not there at the moment uh, about uh, men and women in the Bible called God's Good Design by Claire Smith. That's a good one to look at. Um, uh, there's this one too on work. Uh, by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavour, which is a new one, and that's uh, about how to work out the gospel uh, in your working life. Uh, anyway, they're just they're interesting tidbits.
so, so we're looking this morning at, uh, at this passage then in Colossians chapter 3 and about these three key relationships uh, and really about how the gospel works out in those relationships. So uh, I mentioned before that last week we were thinking about that, that instruction of Paul, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, set your minds uh, on Christ seated at the right hand of God. And last week we kind of thought about how that works out. How does that work out in our daily lives? It works out by us putting to death the sin uh, which kind of pervades our existence uh, and also by clothing ourselves with the characters and the qualities of Jesus Christ uh, and of our Father God in heaven. Uh, and in this particular part of Colossians, Paul is kind of moving on from that and he's going on to look at, well, how does that work out in these three really significant relationships uh, that, we, that we have in our lives? How does, how does fixing our eyes on Jesus and, and putting sin to death and clothing ourselves with the character and quality of Christ, how does that work out in marriage? How does that work out uh, in, in, in our lives as, as parents and children? How does that work out in the workplace? What does that look like? Uh, and in this section of Colossians, Paul goes on to talk about that uh, and to spell that out. So we're just going to go through those three relationships and, and, and try and see and understand how the gospel works out and flows out into those three key relationships. The first pair that Paul addresses uh, is husbands and wives. He writes in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's no denying that, uh, that those instructions, that instruction is, is one of the most controversial, I think, uh, in our day and age, in our culture, in our society. A few months ago, you may or may not have heard about it, the Sydney Anglicans proposed a new a set of marriage vows for people that people could optionally adopt uh, in the Sydney Diocese and in those marriage vows the, uh, the wife promised that she would submit to her husband and it became a front page news story. It was on, on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald uh, for several days in a row actually I think uh, and, and it also became the subject of uh, Q&A uh, when I think Peter Jensen was on Q&A but, but here's one of the letters to the editor that, uh, that was written in response to that. How tiresome to read the latest sexist onslaught on Anglican women. They have a lot to put up with. A few Sydney male Anglican groupies must have laboured long and hard to come up with the idea that women should submit to husbands like 18th century girls. No wonder the churches are so empty now and young people who want to marry seek out marriage celebrants and write their own vows. Surely the Anglican hierarchy can find something more useful to do in our diverse 21st century society than find new ways to demean the women. Apart from the historical inaccuracy of it being a new invention, uh, you, can, you can sense the, 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 the reticence and the resistance to that idea. And yet at the same time, uh, Ligon Duncan, who's an American pastor, uh, can write... This, this about marriage. He, he says in a sermon, I've seen far more marriages broken over the course of 20 years, over his 20 years in ministry, I've seen far more marriages broken because of a misunderstanding of or a rejection of God's design for marriage than I have because of adultery. Isn't that amazing? 
He says, what's one of the, what's one of the biggest causes of, of, of marriages to break up? He says, it's not adultery. Sometimes it is. But one of the biggest root causes is people failing to understand God's good design. Well, in coming to terms with what the Bible says about husbands and wives, it helps, I think, to recognise a few uh, really important things. First of all, uh, it helps to recognise that the submission that God is calling wives to make is not for all women in general in every situation. That is, the call is not women submit to men in everything. You know, so uh, you, you come to church and, uh, and one of the men says, put more toilet paper in the, uh, <laughs> you know, in the bathroom. And uh, you're a woman, you must do that. That's not what's going on. That's not what's going on in marriage either. But, but you, you see what Paul is talking about here is how do these responsibilities and roles work out within the context of marriage? As Tim and Cathy uh, Keller point out in their book about marriage, there's only two votes in marriage and somebody has to have the casting vote in situations where you can't come to an amicable agreement. Second, it helps to realise that uh, that subordination in, kind of in role uh, and responsibility doesn't imply kind of less dignity. So our world is full of people who have different levels of responsibility. Uh, the most obvious is in the workplace, you know. If you're in a workplace, there's only one boss, right? There's one boss and there's lots of other people who work for them. But if you're a worker, it doesn't mean you're less of a human, well... It might. No, it doesn't mean that you're less of a human if you're only a worker and not the boss. Everybody has equal dignity and it's also not to say that the boss is the most capable, the most gifted person either. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term um, primus inter pares. I don't know if that's how you say it. It's lucky Fred's not here this morning. But it's a Latin phrase, primus inter pares, and it means first among equals and it's a, kind of one of those old school things that people uh, kind of like to peddle out every now and again uh, but the classic example of that first among equals is in, the, in, a, in a board situation. So you have a board of you know, 12 people or however many it is and the chairman is called the first among equals. They all have equal status, they all have kind of equal rights and so on but, but everybody on that board has kind of said this guy, we're going to give him extra authority in order to manage the board meetings and, and, and to make sure everything goes well. He's recognised by everyone with extra responsibility but that doesn't take away from the equal dignity and equal significance uh, of every single person. In fact, the greatest example of that equal dignity yet distinct roles is in the person of Jesus Christ and in the, the Trinity the Father and the Son are both equally divine, they're both equally God, they're both equally deserving of our praise and of our worship and of our obedience. And yet Jesus can also say, I have come to do my Father's will. And not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the ultimate example of equal status and equal dignity and equal importance and yet different roles, different responsibilities. 
Third, it helps to realise, uh, I think, that while children and slaves in this passage are told to obey their masters, wives are told only to submit to their husbands. So the issue is not primarily one of obedience. You know, so a husband might say, you must do whatever I tell you to do. That's, that's not what's going on. But the idea is one of submission. That is kind of a, the idea is of willful demotion, if you like, or willful kind of uh, relinquishment of herself uh, to her husband. So notice what the call then is not. The call is not for wives to stay home, to stay home and bake, you know, and bake dinner. Uh, it's not an acknowledgement that women are a weaker sex. Paul isn't saying that the problem is that women are inherently indecisive and incapable of leadership. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not even remotely saying that. Rather, it's a question of the wife saying, how can I give myself, how can I give my very self who I am, how can I give that to my husband in the context of a marriage? How do I do that? I do that by relinquishing my claim to... to to leadership by giving myself over my interests, my hopes, my dreams, my wants, my desires, everything that I am and giving that over to my husband. In essence, it's the question of what does it mean to love someone? And it's the same question really that the husband is supposed to ask as well. So Paul goes on then uh, and he says uh, that husbands are to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. Husbands uh, are not told, uh, notably, they're not told to rule their wives or to dominate or to subdue them, but rather to love them, to do everything in their power to enable them to flourish and to grow. The daily question, if you're a husband, then is, how can I help my wife to grow? What can I do to enable that? Some people have... uh, have likened the relationship between husbands and wives in marriage to like ballroom dancing. You know, in ballroom dancing, somebody has to lead, otherwise you keep treading on each other's toes, uh, you know, or going in different directions, and it just doesn't work. In a marriage, the husband takes the lead, just like in ballroom dancing, I guess. And at one level that works and it's helpful, but, but at another level I think it's probably more complicated than that. You see, take the, you know, continue with the ballroom dancing analogy. Suppose that uh, you know, there's this husband and their wife, uh, wife and they're, uh, they're out ballroom dancing, uh, as everyone does these days. Um, and he might, he might sort of think to himself, actually, I really don't have a clue uh, about dancing. You know, I've never danced you know, the foxtrot before. Uh, but you know what you're doing. Why don't you take the lead in this dance? You see, so, so he realises in, uh, in his role as kind of uh, you know, loving his wife and, 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 and his role as kind of the leader, he sort of realises that she's actually better at this task than he is and so he says, well, why don't you take responsibility uh, in this area? Why don't you kind of show me how it's done? In that way, he's recognising her gifts and enabling her to, to use them in order to, to help them both. Conversely, uh, you know, the husband might be a little bit slow to realise the giftedness uh, of his wife and she might 
kind of uh, politely go, uh, would you mind if I, you know, kind of led this one? I've known the Foxtrot for a few years now and, uh, and he, if he's loving and uh, wise, will see that she's the much better dancer and will enable her to use those gifts uh, to help them both. You see, uh, in both situations, there's a, there's a kind of a, a desire to serve each other. And yet also in both situations, there is still kind of a slight essence of leadership that the husband has. She asks him, uh, he offers to her, uh, but together still they're working out in order to, uh, to kind of give themselves to each other in order that together they might grow uh, and develop uh, and serve God. Paul Tripp uh, has written a book uh, and done some talks about marriage as well uh, entitled What Did You Expect? I haven't read those but uh, my brother is kind of obsessed with them and so I've sat through more than a few kind of, you know, explanations of what the book is about. Uh, so I think I'm getting the, right, getting the message right here. But, but what Tripp describes in that book is that the basic problem of, of marriage and really of all of life is that we kind of construct these kingdoms of one, he calls them. So, you know, we kind of live in this kingdom. It's my kingdom and I'm the king and as long as everybody else around me is serving my kingdom and kind of, you know, doing obeisance, you know, and bowing down to me as the king of my kingdom, then everything works. But the moment that somebody else tries to serve another kingdom, their own kingdom, or somebody else's kingdom, then it all falls apart. Bitterness and resentment uh, and all those things uh, come about. But what God is saying here is that that's totally inappropriate. Neither the husband or the wife gets to live in a kingdom of one. The husband can't say, you must serve me. Rather, because he loves his wife, he tries to lead in a way which serves her. And the wife can't say, you must serve me. Rather, she tries to love her husband. She loves her husband by submitting to him and serving him in a way which honours him. At the end of the day, both husband and wife are trying to give themselves to each other, give themselves up for each other, though in slightly different ways. What's interesting, I think, uh, is that the Bible doesn't actually give much guidance on how that works out. It's, it's amazing actually, isn't it? That there's probably about, if you added all the stuff about marriage together in the Bible, you, you probably get about a paragraph, maybe a page. That's not a whole lot, is it, for one of the most central relationships of life. How come the Bible says so little? I think the answer is actually the Bible doesn't say so little. It says so little explicitly, but actually the whole of the Bible and the relationship of God the Father and God the Son to each other, that gives us a model of how we're to work these things out in our lives. You see, the ultimate example, the perfect example of how a wife should submit to her husband is the example of Jesus submitting to the Father. Not my will but yours be done. And the ultimate 
example of a husband uh, giving himself up for his wife in love is the example of Jesus giving himself up for the church. As, uh, as Kathy Keller points out, both husbands and wives both get to play the Jesus role but in different ways. And the more we understand Jesus and who he is and what he's done and how he relates to the Father, how he relates to us, everything that we can possibly understand about him, the more we understand him, the more we set our minds on Christ, seated at the right hand of God, the more we understand that, the more we understand how to live out the implications of who Jesus is in our daily lives. But before we move on to the parents and children, I guess it's worth saying one other thing and that is that whenever you talk about marriage working out well in a biblical context, there's always, I guess, a painful lingering question, isn't there? There's always that painful question of what do you do when one partner in the marriage seems to be living out the gospel implications but the other isn't. You know, what do you do if you're a wife and you're trying to faithfully kind of give yourself to your husband and and submit to him, but he is abusing you or being domineering? He's not giving himself up for you. How do you deal with that? What do you do if you're a husband and you're trying to love your wife as Christ loved the church and to give yourself up for your wife and she constantly takes advantage of you and manipulates you and tries to control you. How do you deal with that? I think there are fewer painful things in life than those realities. The realities, if you like, of unrequited love, unmatched love giving yourself up in love for somebody else and then not having that reciprocated. It is deeply, deeply painful. And to be honest, what to do in those circumstances are not an easy question to answer. Except to say that Jesus' example of submission and love at least give us a glimpse of how to respond. See, Jesus' submission to his father was a costly submission. (laughs) At what point was it that Jesus said, not your will, but not my will, but yours be done? It was in the shadow of the cross, wasn't it? What did it cost him to submit to the father? It cost him his life. It was the most painful example of submission in the history of the world. And yet he did it because he loved his father and because he loved us. Jesus' example of leadership given to the church is an example of costly leadership. What did it cost Jesus to lead us, his people? It cost him his life. Jesus gave up his life to redeem us, to restore us, to lead us as his people. Please don't uh, misunderstand me. I'm not saying that 
uh, if you're being abused, that you should just, you know, just live with that uh, and get over it. Not at all. You know, if, if that's the situation that you find yourself in or if you know people who are in that situation, it's important to get help, to talk, talk to a friend. Uh, uh, they can give you help and advice. Talk to, uh, to myself or one of the elders. It's important uh, to deal with those situations as well. The cost of cross-shaped love in those situations may mean painful and difficult steps. But even in a good marriage, love and submission are incredibly costly. The coupling of love uh, and, and, uh, and submission together as two sides of the same coin mean that there's a fair amount of variability in how that works out in practice. But the basic point is that we need to set our minds on Jesus Christ, on his life and example as a model for our lives in our marriages. Well, that's the first pair. You'll be happy to know that's the longest pair. Uh, The second pair uh, of relationships that Paul talks about uh, is parents and children. So he writes in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So the first uh, call then is for children to obey their parents in everything. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty demanding, isn't it? So it's not just obey your parents in some things or obey your parents most of the time, but Paul says obey your parents in everything, all the time. It's tough, again, because of that kingdom of one thing. You know, As children, we rule our own kingdom, we want people to serve us, when people tell us what to do, we don't like it. We resent us. We resent it. But God says that children should obey parents in everything. Why? Because it pleases the Lord. Now that obviously means that if your parents tell you to do something which dishonours God, you shouldn't do it. But when they do tell you to do something, which I suppose is neither here nor there, You ought to do it. Why? Because it pleases God. So when your parents, uh, when your mum asks you to tidy your bedroom, you know, does does anyone's anyone's mother ever ask them to tidy their bedroom? Or to make the bed or anything like that? (laughs) You can all play this part of the sermon for them later on during the day. I just want you to listen to something. (laughs) The minister said this morning. So your mum, you know, why? If your if your mother asks you to, you know, tidy your room, why why would you do that? Paul says because to do that, to obey your parents, pleases God. You know, you you know, you might have lots of reasons not to do that, not to clean clean your room. Uh, you might not mind it being messy. You know, it's your room after all. Uh, it's my room. I don't mind it being messy. Um, uh, you might find it easier to find things when they're scattered around on the floor. Yes, we've all heard the excuses before, haven't we? But here's the thing. To clean your room or to do the dishes or to 
mow the lawn or put out the rubbish or whatever it might be, to do that simply because your mum or dad asks you to do it, that pleases God because God loves it when, he obeys the par- when we obey the parents that he's given us. As children, even when we've grown up and left home, we need to constantly be setting our minds on Christ at the right hand of God. And here's an example of how he submitted himself to his Father in heaven, that costly submission to his Father in heaven. Then Paul goes on to address uh, the parents. Uh, He says, fathers are not to embitter their children lest they become discouraged. Even though the uh, the instruction is to fathers, that's probably just because they were kind of the the, the head uh, of the kind of the disciplinary area of the house uh, in Roman society. But the idea, I don't think, is any less relevant uh, for mothers as well. Uh, it's noteworthy again that parents aren't commanded to rule their children, but rather the instruction that Paul gives them is, don't embitter your children. I think that's interesting because it suggests that the greater danger that we probably face is not that we, you know, kind of don't offer enough guidance to our children on what to do and what not to do, but rather the greater danger is that our heavy-handedness will embitter them and discourage them. Uh, a few weeks ago I, I, I was kind of reflecting on God's dealings with us you know, as a parent to us you know, and us as his children. You see, it's true that children should obey their parents just as we should obey God. But thankfully God doesn't deal with every single act of disobedience that we commit against him. In his mercy and his grace he lets things go unpunished. Imagine what it would be like if every sin that we committed brought about an immediate consequence, an immediate repercussion. Imagine that. So you, uh, you know, someone said to you, how was your day? Good. And it had been a rotten day. Imagine that you know, thunder and lightning came down from heaven and, and, and struck you. Or the next moment you, you, know, you, you broke your leg as punishment, as recompense for having lied. What would happen? What would be the cost of that? The likely uh, result would be that we would become embittered and discouraged and downhearted. And in the same way, if you jump on your children, if you jump down their throats for every single thing that they do wrong, then they'll become bitter and discouraged. We need to exercise the great patience and the great mercy and the great love of God. Which is not to say that we should let everything go. That's just as bad. It takes great wisdom to know what to let go and what not to let go and when to let it go and when not to let it go. It takes incredible wisdom. 
But the more we set our minds on the Father seated in heaven and Christ at his right hand, the more we understand God and his wisdom and his mercy and his love that he's shown to us, the better equipped we'll be to show mercy and love and patience and long-suffering to our children in dealing with their disobedience and their error. Unbalanced, ungracious, unmerciful parenting which expects children to do perfectly what it's taken God 20 years to teach us is parenting which will embitter and discourage. No, what we need is to set our minds on Jesus Christ at the right hand of God and meditate and reflect on his wisdom and his love and his mercy. So we've seen then those two central relationships uh, the relationship of marriage and of parents and children. And the last pair of relationships that Paul mentions is the master and the slave. So he writes in verse 21, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. It's worth, I think, because it's so strange to us, it's worth spending a moment at least thinking about slavery as an institution and what to make of the fact that it's just seems to be only mentioned really in passing in the Bible. Why? What do we make of the fact that the Bible talks about slavery in such muted tones? Why, you know, why isn't Paul going, slavery is a wicked evil, why, you know, abolish it, get rid of it? Why doesn't the Bible decry slavery? I think uh, there's a few things to say about that. First, it helps to realise that by some estimates in the ancient world, a third of people uh, were slaves uh, at any one time. So a third of the population was in slavery of one kind uh, or another. So it was a massive institution. Uh, Slavery was not based uh, on race like it was in America and in Europe. Uh, in the, uh, a few centuries ago and slavery often wasn't lifelong. It was only a temporary kind of situation. Uh, but more than that, slaves weren't just restricted to doing menial work. So kind of when we think of the slavery that was around in uh, Europe and America, you know, people were really doing menial work. They were, you know, cotton picking and, and doing all the jobs that, that no one else wanted to do. But in the first century, you know, some slaves were doctors, professors, civil servants, you know, people from all kind of walks of life doing all kinds of different jobs. It also helps to realise that slavery wasn't in every respect a bad thing. So I think I said this a few weeks ago, but it was a kind of a bankruptcy protection scheme. Uh, so if you got into serious debt, one of the ways that you could deal with that was to kind of sell yourself Uh, into slavery uh, as a way of kind of protecting your family from 
ending up destitute. So, so it was actually it was sort of a way of uh, protecting yourself about, uh, from, uh, from the bad debts that you might accrue. Uh, what that meant was you might sell yourself into slavery and I guess you'd kind of be looked after uh, a little bit, you'd be provided for and your wages would go instead of to you, they go to paying off uh, your debt. So clearly being a slave was not a great life but in a sense slavery was better than destitution. We might be able to think, of course, of uh, better ways of uh, avoiding destitution than slavery, but I guess the point is Paul's not trying to outline a kind of a new economic and the best way of uh, you know, avoiding slavery, but he's trying to say within this system that we're working with, within the kind of economic system that you're working in, how do you, how do you work out the gospel implications in that? And the way that the Bible goes on to talk about that really, I guess, undermines, in a way, the whole institution of slavery. Uh, For instance, from the perspective of masters, masters were to treat their slaves with justice and fairness. They weren't to treat them as property. Uh, In his letter to Philemon, Paul, Philemon's all about a slave Onesimus who has run away from Philemon and Paul's writing to him and saying, look, you should take this guy back and when he comes back, how should you treat him? You should treat him as a brother. So in a way, kind of the New Testament is, is destroying slavery from the inside. Everything that was bad about it, the oppression, the injustice, the unfairness, is kind of being removed by applying the gospel to it. Now there's a lot more that you could say about the Bible uh, and slavery But I guess the important question for us is, what do we do with these commands uh, about masters and slaves uh, in the 21st century? None of us are slaves and none of us are slave masters, but I think these instructions are still uh, helpful for working out what to do in our working lives. Uh, I think Tim Keller calls them a rhetorical amplifier, whatever that means. But his basic point is, you know, if these kind of instructions apply for the difficult situation of being a slave or being a slave master, how much more do they apply in the much less difficult situation of being an employer or being an employee? How do we redeem work with the Gospel? That's the question. How do we redeem work with the Gospel? We do it by recognising as either an employee or an employer that we work for the same master. That's the basic point. For employers, uh, for employers, that means that we treat our employees with dignity because we realise that we're not the absolute boss. There's someone in authority over us. The buck doesn't stop with us. The buck stops with, with Jesus in heaven. We treat our employees with the same justice and mercy that God's treated us. We treat our employees with the same grace and forgiveness and patience and long-suffering that God has treated us with. That's hard, isn't it? It's so hard to be patient with someone who's horribly incompetent. But aren't we horribly incompetent from God's perspective? Wouldn't it be easier 
just to do away with all of us and let Jesus finish all the work himself. And yet God has chosen in his wisdom to enable us to be part of his redemption plan in his grace and his mercy and his love. Yes, there are times when we have to, might have to say, look, I'm sorry, this just isn't working out. Maybe you're not suited to be a, I don't know, whatever. But our first point of call is to model the patience and the kindness and the love of God. What does it mean as employees? It means that whatever work we do, we do it with all our heart because we're not working for that boss and we're not working for that paycheck but we're working for Jesus. We're working for an eternal reward. We're working for something that will last beyond this earth. We're working for Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth and our Redeemer. That's so hard, isn't it? I think that's one of the hardest things in all of life is when you're in a dead-end job and a job which isn't kind of interesting, it's not motivating, it is so hard to keep going, isn't it? And there's no, great, there's no great secret. It's not as though you'll say, well, I'm working for God and all of a sudden you'll enjoy it. That might come eventually. But before that comes, there's a lot of hard grind where we have to fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. So we have, to, we have to set our minds on Christ seated at the right hand of God every day of our lives because every day of our lives it's hard to work out the implications of the gospel. But when we see Jesus crowned with glory and splendour, when we see Jesus having worked out the difficulties of our world in his life in service to God, we catch a glimpse of what it means for us to work out the difficulties of our life remaining faithful and in service to God. I think it would be fair to say that all of us fail terribly at working out the gospel in our lives, whether it's in marriages, whether it's in families, whether it's in workplaces. But we have to remember as well, I think, that living out these relationships in the context of the gospel not, just, not only means following Jesus' example but it also means remembering what Christ has done. It also means living out all of these relationships in the shadow of the cross. It means every day when we fail to do what Christ has already done before us. It means that every day we have to end the day at the foot of the cross saying, Lord, I've, I've done it again today. I've mucked it up. I've embittered my children. I've manipulated my husband." I've oppressed my wife. I gave half-hearted work. I oppressed my employees. Lord, forgive me and help me through the Holy Spirit to keep setting my eyes on Jesus Christ and working out his life in mine. Let's pray for that.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to come before you humbly and we want to confess that uh, each of us fail every day in so many different ways to live out the implications of the gospel in our life. Lord, uh, as husbands, we fail to love our wives, we oppress them. As wives, we try to dominate our husbands and overrule them and manipulate them. As parents, we discourage our children and embitter them. As children, Lord, we resent our parents telling us what to do. As employees, we find it hard to stay motivated and to keep working, to keep working for Jesus. As employers, we so easily put the requirements of the business over the needs of those who work for us. Lord, we want to bring these things before you and lay them at your feet and ask that you would have mercy on us. Lord, thank you that you're not like us and that you love us with a perfect love and you rule us with a perfect rule and you treat us with perfect justice and perfect fairness. Lord, thank you that even when we fail, you are constant and always gracious and always merciful and always willing to receive us back. Lord, help us to do likewise. We pray that by your spirit you might make us like Jesus Christ, that we might live out who he is, in your world. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.